You're listening to Crosspoint Community Church in LaGrange, Texas podcast. To learn more about Crosspoint Community Church, including service times and how you can connect, please visit crosspointchurchtx.org. Hey, we are finishing up our series entitled Postcards, and we determined that if you know what a postcard is, you're old. And uh, so I'm going to move this for a second. And um, when we're talking about postcards, we're talking about books of the Bible that are just one chapter. And um, so we've talked about Obadiah, which was a, a book to the people of Israel. It was a book of hope and restoration while also at the same point, a point of judgment for Edom. And we talked about Second John and Third John, which was talking about truth and love and the guardrails that we should live life in and, and that it's difficult for us. Um, I think it's always been difficult, but I think even more so in our culture today to how do we live out our faith in a, in a tension of truth and love, and that truth and love, they both are matter, they both are important, and we don't want to go over the guardrails because over on the guardrails is where there's danger, where there's, there's hurt, where there's pain, there's shame, regret, and we want to continue to move in the direction of Jesus, and that truth and love is a part of that. And so we have a tendency to, I think more and more so today, we have a tendency to say, hey, we love someone, and, and, and loving someone not say the truth. And because we're just afraid to hurt someone or to, to lose that relationship or whatever that is that we've bought into. And um, today we're going to be talking about a book called Jude. And uh, it's not from the Beatles, okay? It's not a Beatles song. Again, if you laughed at that, you tell me how old you are. Um, but I've heard about it on Apple Tunes and stuff. So, um, but man, this week is the main the main part of this book is false teaching. And again, this is early on in the church. This book was we have a pretty good idea. This book was written probably between 68 and 70 A.D. In 70 A.D., the temple in Jerusalem fell. And so there are writings in the New Testament that speak to that, and there are writings that don't. And so those writings that don't were before that, and it's because it was such a dramatic event. You can imagine if your temple, the place that you go to for generations to go to worship, and that's where God resides in your mindset, and that is gone, then what do you do? And so the writings and all that changed, and, and the perspective of who God is changed, and so um, and broadened. Even though God had been telling them, I don't just reside here, I'm a God of, of all the nations, of all the people, um, they just kind of had that mindset. And so about 60 to 70 A.D., and um, it was written by Jude, and Jude is the half-brother to Jesus. So he's a leader in the church of Jerusalem. His brother, James, is the lead pastor at the church in Jerusalem. And um, if you've read some of the New Testament, there's a book called James. And so James has written a book as well. And so these two guys are half-brothers to Jesus. And the reason that they're half-brothers to Jesus is because they didn't have the same dad. All right? Jesus' dad, God the Father. All right? And so... That moment happened, the blessing of Mary and her being able to, through immaculate conception, give birth to the person of Jesus so that he could, God in the flesh, walk amongst us and be of the flesh, but also be filled with the Spirit and be of the Spirit. And most importantly, he is God incarnate. And then Mary also had other children. So she, yes, was a virgin when she had Jesus. She was not afterwards. Okay? Um, so James and Jude grew up together with Jesus, 
which is an interesting thing. I mean, if your brother is literally perfect, <laughs> that's hard to like follow up to, right? Like, oh yeah, Jesus did it good again. You know, he got an A on the test. Yes, Jesus, he's never gonna fail, right? <clears throat> and so they grew up with that. But what's interesting is is that James and Jude became disciples and followers of their brother. After his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, they followed him around. His mother followed him around during this time. And, but afterwards, which to me speaks highly of who he was. If you're in your home and people in your home know you the best. They know your shortcomings, your faults, your whatever. And in those moments of stress and tension, the things that come out of you that are squeezed out may not be of God. But with Jesus, when life squeezed around... He oozed himself. He fulfilled all 613 laws or edicts, met them perfectly, fulfilled them completely so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for us. And so James and Jude lived in a house with Jesus and saw this and became followers of his and active leaders in the early church. And so that's, I think that's an interesting thing. This book, Jude, um, was already being, in 90, was already being talked about by, by the other church leaders and stuff. So we know it was being accepted and talked about. And actually, matter of fact, there's portions of the book of Jude in Second Peter, where they're kind of almost verbatim. And the main teaching here in Jude is false teachers. And he wants to, again, early church, Gnosticism, which we talked about. People were saying that Jesus was... A ghost-like, he wasn't fully God incarnate, that he wasn't God in the flesh. And so that's the main thing that they're talking about and some other stuff. And so this week, this passage really sunk home for me. Um, I was a youth pastor for a while. And um, there's this thing called Facebook and Instagram. And so you can follow people, right? And so we're friends with kids. And, 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 uh, and some students, you just develop because you do life with them more. You go on mission trips, you do camps, you do things. And so you just develop some deeper relationships with them. And even as they come into adulthood, you get to do their weddings and stuff. And it's the great privilege of being a pastor, a student pastor. And so this week I had two different examples of students that were in my student ministry for most of their junior high, high school years. And actually still had influence and reflection with them and did life with them when they were in high school or in college and early adulthood before we moved here. And this really passage sunk into me because one student proclaimed his deconversion from Christianity this week. He's about 40, so he's an adult, somewhat. Um, Just joking, he's a great guy. And he began to list out all the reasons. Newly married, first time married, probably about to have kids. Um, an artist, so he's influential in some ways in that area. And just to see his, his proclamation of deconversion was interesting. Just to see the different things that he thought. And, and honestly, as a theologian, as a college professor, pastor, Friend, I just wanted to say, hey, dude, and just list off all the reasons that he was incorrect. I wanted to to fix that in the moment. And so I typed up, (laughs) no, that's not right. You know, delete it. (laughs) No. 
And so I still haven't posted. Because honestly, what I want to say to him is, I still love you. No matter where you're at in your faith journey, your friend, Chris, still loves you. I'm disappointed because I feel like you're on the wrong section right now. But then on the other end, another student posted, and it's his seventh year to go to Peru and spend weeks on end sharing the gospel. And over the last two times that he's gone, he's actually been the leader of the group, and he's fluent in Spanish and just has a a great heart. And both of these guys have great hearts. They're both musicians. They're both talented. They're both smart people. But to see their journey and their interactions over the last few years and to see where one is at leading mission trips and where the other one is at and is deconverting from the faith and, and all the different things and just thinking as a pastor, like, where did I go wrong? What did I not say? What did I not do in those moments? What did I not teach so that this student would, would truly own and understand and be amazed by God's grace, even though your circumstances are junky, that you can still lean into Jesus. Because as, as I even portioned through all the different things that he talked about and thought about, I was like, man, brother, my friend, the thing that you've left out is Jesus. That there's all of these man things and man easily distorts God's truth for their own good and for their own benefit and for their own wealth and for their own power and for their own. And so you can look throughout history and see where man has said, in the name of God, we are doing X and God's nowhere near it. So we see that even more so today as people are looking at faith and they look at some of the things we've done in the past in the name of God. Whether those people are Christians or not, it still hinders and hurts our faith. And so I think about as we come into school, and I think about teachers that are teachers in a public school that are believers and followers of Christ and, and, and the delicate walk that it takes to share and to lean into what it means to, to be who you are and, and your calling as a, as a teacher, um, as a coach, as, a, as an administrator. And, and that dance that you have to live in today to be able to do that. And, and to know that that's even more important today than ever before. And, and what does it look like for us as a family, as a community? And as we've talked about over the last few weeks, this important word, koinonia fellowship. That there's this deep, shared fellowship that we have together. And it's not just a one-time thing. It's not just a Sunday thing. It's something where we begin to do life together and encourage each other. Because sometimes life is stinky. And we do ask some deep questions and we don't fully understand it. And one of the things that we have to grasp is doubt is not the opposite of faith. Actually, doubt drives us deeper into our faith if we want it to. If we're intellectually and faith honest, it drives us deeper into who Jesus is and what he did and why he did it. Does does the Bible provide all the answers for everything? No. That's the faith component. But there's more than enough evidence that backs up that the person of Jesus was born the way that he was said he was born, that he lived in the way they said he lived, that he died and he resurrected, and that even his brothers who saw him walked with him. So this morning, I want to just give you a quick 
rundown of Jude. And as before we do that, I want to kind of hit on some Christian theology 101, okay? That's important. All right, the first thing is this in Christian theology 101 is God is holy. God is holy. Because God is holy, sin repulses him. He's actually allergic to it. His holiness requires the removal and the destruction of sin. Now, there's a lot of things about God, but that's the first part I want us to grasp today. God is holy, and because of his holiness, sin can't be in his presence. So it repudiates it, removes it, all right? The second thing that I want you to get is humans, we are sinners. We are sinners. And the word sin is actually an archery term, and it's this idea that every time that we pull back the bow and arrow, it goes and it shoots, and it never hits the bullseye. And so that for everything that we do, every attempt of, of things that we do, every time we pull back the arrow, we aim for perfection, we aim for the bullseye, but it always falls short. Even Romans 3.23, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glory. Anytime we miss, it's sin, and we fall short. There's also this other thing called the law, which was Old Testament, right? But the law is God and is of God because it comes out of the character of who he is. And so the law was this thing of right and wrongs, standards and dictates, okay, that came from God. And our obedience to the law was how we showed how we loved God. If we obeyed, then that showed our love. But sin causes spiritual death. And we could never, because of our sin, we could never meet the perfection of the law, right? Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gifts of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, in the days of the law, there was this thing called the sacrificial system because man had to remove, God had to remove man's sin, because he's holy, right? And so because of that, there was a payment required through an unblemished meal, through an unblemished animal, and a contrite heart. In other words, you come and you bring the sacrifice with a contrite heart, a repentant heart of, hey, I recognize that I'm going in the wrong direction and I need to go in a new direction. And that God's love allowed for our sins to be addressed through the animal sacrifice. All right? And this is a lot of information, all right? But God wanted his people to see and understand the severity of their sin. So every time that there was an animal sacrifice, you were there present. You saw the death of the animal. And what God was wanting you in that moment is to see his love for you is that that was what we deserved because of our sin. But he'd pass it on to the animal, the unblemished animals. There's this really cool thing called a scapegoat. Have you all heard that term, scapegoat? All right, that's actually a biblical term. All right. And what would happen was two goats, two unblemished goats, would be brought to the high priest on the Day of Atonement, which was one day a year. And they would bring them. And one goat was sacrificed as a sin offering. And so the interesting part is the sin offering. The goat was sacrificed. Part of it went to the temple. And then part of it went back for you and your house. Nothing was wasted. Then the other one, the other goat, was the scapegoat. And that would receive your atonement. And so what it would do is the high priest would pray over that goat and then release that goat into the wilderness. And it's this idea is that your sins run away as far as the east is from the west. That goes out into the wilderness, wilderness never to be found. Your atonement 
is complete in the Lord. And so one day of year, the high priest would go in and do those two. One, a sin offering, but also atonement. And so for the year, your sins were covered. Now, that also meant that people were living it up, saying, hey, I've got a year to go. Because that's just humanity, right? I'm going to take advantage of the system. Well, God had worked it out in his plan. And Jesus, at just the right time, came in as the fulfillment of... Not the abolishment of the law and the sacrificial system. Even Jesus says in Matthew 5:17, "Don't think that I've come to abolish the law to fulfill it." Jesus fulfilled all 613 edicts. Every law, every detail, he crossed every T, he dotted every I. Fulfillment is where God's justice and mercy meet, right? In John 1:29. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here comes the Lamb of Atonement. God's holiness required just punishment for our sins, but his love allowed himself to take our place. What we rightly deserve in God's justice God's mercy provided an adequate, more than adequate sacrifice, the fulfillment of sacrifice in his own self, in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the sin offering and the scapegoat for us. Your sins, upon you saying yes to Jesus, your sins are covered and atoned for. And the scapegoat is in the wilderness, never to be found again. Now, our struggle is we kind of like our sins. They're comfortable. And so because they're comfortable, sometimes we try to run back to them, and at least we know that. It's like that comfortable shirt that you've got that you know it's ragged, it's nasty, you shouldn't even wear it to Walmart, but you do. And your wife or somebody, they've tried to hide it from you, they try to take it to second chance, and you see it at second chance, and you buy it again. Like, it's not going away, right? And that's how we deal with sin. That's our struggle. There's some things that we're just comfortable with. We know that they're not the best for us. We know that that's not what God wants for us, but we're just comfortable with it. And we can't quite give it up for whatever reason. Even though we know it doesn't add value. We've just been with us so long that we just can't get rid of it. And here is a journey for us. As we're removing those things and allowing those things to go so we can find freedom in Christ and knowing that it's already been paid for in the person and work of Christ. And so here we have false teachers that are trying to teach something different, trying to enter into the early church. And Jude, the brother of Jesus, knows who Jesus is. And he's like, do not let anyone enter into your church that teaches something different about the person and work and life of Jesus than what you've been taught by the apostles and the disciples. Because anything outside of that is not true. Even Romans chapter 5, Paul says this, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person. Though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So therefore, we receive this really big, important word. Grace. 
Have you all heard that word? Grace? Charis is the Greek word. It's this idea of that which is freely given to those who do not deserve. Think Christmas morning. You receive a gift and you're overwhelmed by it. It's more than you expected. That's grace. That's the person and work of Jesus, that when you say yes to the gift of him, it's more than you deserve. And for us, as followers of Christ, the gift is, is that it's a gift that keeps on giving. It's a box that we have a tendency to, like, oh, cool, God, and we put it up there. And God's like, listen, no, I, I'm, I want you to explore the box. I want you to tear the box apart. I don't want to remain in the box. I don't want to be a God that you put up on the shelf when you need me. I want to be a God that walks with you and lives with you and does life with you and knows you as intimately, and you know me as intimately as I know you. A gift that you explore and you get to know. Some of you have computers and phones, and you know very little about them. You know how to maybe get email. Maybe some of you know how to do video calls. Some of you may know that there's some apps on there, and you're like, I have no idea what this app does. That's our walk with Jesus. As you said yes to Jesus and you've been given a phone, that's smart. And isn't it interesting, like you can have a conversation with someone and all of a sudden something about that conversation shows up on your phone? (laughs) Kind of scary. It's almost like they know what you're talking about. That's kind of like God. God already knows your heart. He already knows what you're thinking. He already knows your motivations. But we have this phone that we kind of use for our benefit, but not necessarily fully access everything that that phone or that computer fully has for us. That's our faith journey is fully experiencing the gift that we have in Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. I think about my two friends. They're both still on a journey. Right? Even my friend that's been to Peru seven times doesn't mean that he doesn't have struggles. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have doubts. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have things that he's thinking about and questioning. And then my other friend that's publicly come out and said, hey, I don't believe in Jesus anymore, and has actually created an app that every day automatically calls all of the churches in Colorado and tells them to please pray for his skunks. So you see the heart change. And for us, life can beat us up. And here Jude, if you have your Bibles, if not, it's going to be on the screen. Here Jude is in that kind of a culture. And he says this. This letter is from Jude, the slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. I am writing to all of you who have been called. 
Now, this is a specific call to salvation. So everyone that he's talking to, he believes is someone that has received a call. In other words, it's a specific call. Jesus has called your unique phone number, and you've answered. And in answering, you've said yes to being part of the community. It's not a, just a general call, but a specific call to you. That's why I wholeheartedly believe whenever Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he didn't just say, hey, you guys, come out. He specifically said, hey, Lazarus, because the power of Jesus' words, the power of his voice would raise everybody, but he wanted to raise just Lazarus. And so whenever he calls you to faith, he specifically calls you by name and speaks to your heart and your soul and your mind. And some of you, even if I'm talking about, you remember that moment when it's clear that your heart and your mind and your soul is moving toward him, that you're beginning to grasp the amazing grace that he's bestowed upon you, and you're beginning to grasp the depth of your sin and the depravity of your soul and your mind, and you're moving toward him. And that's what Jude here is talking about. And he says, then the fruits of this is, listen, that he loves you and keeps you safe. And the care of Christ Jesus. This love is a, is a sanctification kind of thing that as you get to know Jesus, that he draws you closer and closer and closer. So you experience the fullness of Jesus. And that he watches you and takes care of you. He's overseeing you. You can't go anywhere that he can't watch and see you. May God give you more and more mercy and peace and love. Verse 3. Dear friends... I've been eagerly planning to write to you about salvation that we all share. But now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith. Now, this is a great image. If y'all seen MMA and wrestling, you know what I'm talking about? This is the image of, like, defend the faith. In other words, put on your WW whatever E outfit, put on your luchador outfit, whatever, get your MMA outfit, and fight for the faith. That God has entrusted you once for all. He's entrusted us with the faith and with the doctrine and with the truth. And we have to fight for it because there's going to be those that are going to want to change it. Because sometimes there's things about God's word and God's truth that we don't like and are not convenient. And it's kind of painful because there's discipline involved in it. And so we want to make it easier. It's entrusted for all time to his holy people. I say this because some of the ungodly people have wormed their way in. It literally crept in unnoticed into your churches. And here's what the result of that is. Saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. In other words, because grace is inexhaustible, if God's grace is inexhaustible, then do whatever the heck you want to do. Because surely, when you come to the altar and say, God, please forgive me, he's going to forgive you. Because that's what a distorted idea of a good father does, is just blesses whatever. But, as we know, as parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles, there are times where discipline is necessary and needed for correction so that our children can live in truth and love and pursue and know Jesus. Because we know that stepping over the boundary lines is harmful. It causes pain, shame, regrets. And to know that grace abounds in here. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they've denied their own Lord and Master. And here Jude gives some illustrations 
of things that have happened in the past. Some of you, if you've been around church for a little bit, may know them. Some of you that have been in church for a little bit may not know them. These are kind of, some of them are obscure, so we're not going to talk a lot about them, all right? So I want to remind you, underline that, remind you, though you already know these things, that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. And I remind you, Of the angels, you did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great judgment. This is talking about when Satan fell and and all the angels came with him. Verse 7, and don't forget, in other words, let me remind you of Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of God's eternal judgment. Jude wants to remind them that, hey, listen, God loves you, but there's also consequences. Verse 8, in the same way these people, these false teachers, they claim authority from their dreams. But they live immoral lives. They defy authority. And they scoff at supernatural things. But even Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy, but simply said, The Lord rebuke you. This took place when Michael was arguing with the devil about Moses' body. Again, you've probably never heard that. Look it up on your own. It's from the book of Assumption of Moses, all right? It's a pseudepigraphal book. Verse 10. But these people scoff at the things that they do not understand. Like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instincts tell them. And so they bring about their own destruction. What sorrow awaits them, for they follow in the footsteps of Cain, who killed his brother. Follow in the footsteps like Balaam and deceive people for money. And like Korah, they perish in the rebellion. These are men who in the past have been pursued their own pursuits and their own motivation, and God provided judgment. Verse 12, And when these people eat with you in your fellowship mills, commemorating the Lord's love, they are like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. They are like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. They are like clouds blowing over the land without giving any rain. They are like trees in the autumn that are doubly dead, for they bear no fruit and have been pulled up by the roots. They're like wild, they're like wild waves of the sea churning up foam in their shameful deeds. They're like wandering stars doomed forever to the blackest darkness. See him kind of continuing to build on that. And then Enoch, again, a book, a pseudepigrapha book. It's the uh, prophecy of Enoch, who lived in the seventh generation after Adam, prophesied about these people. And he said, listen, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of holy ones. To execute judgment on the people of the world. He will convict every person of all the ungodly things they have done and all the insults that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These people are grumblers and complainers living only to satisfy their desires. And they brag about themselves and they flatter others to get what they want. But you, my dear friends. So here he's been talking about all the judgments, all the different things, but now he comes back. To the core group. And he says, but you, my dear friends, must remember what the apostles of the Lord Jesus predicted. They told you about the last times. Told you there would be scoffers. Told you that there would be ungodly people with ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they do not live in the God's spirit. But you, dear friends, 
Build each other up in the most holy of faith. And pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. And await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he will bring you eternal life. And this way you will keep yourself safe. Verse 22. When you must show mercy to those who faith is wavering. Rescuing others by snatching them from the flames of the judgment. Show mercy to still others. But do so with great caution. Hating the sins that contaminate their lives. Those last few verses are our call in Koinonia Fellowship. To love each other in the messiness of life, to be accountable to each other, to grow with one another, and to literally rescue each other from the moments of truth and love when someone is willing to step over, considering stepping over the boundaries of, of truth and love, to be able to snatch them from that, to know that that will cause them harm. Jude is using very strong language because he's passionate. And he sees people who are early on in their Christian faith. And they've come from pagan cults. They've come from fertility cults and from cults that taught magic and astrology and all kinds of interesting, crazy type stuff to appease God. And what Jude is telling them, listen, pursue the person of Jesus and know him. Lean into who Jesus is. Don't let someone teach you something other than what the disciples and apostles have taught you. Lean into the truth of the gospel of Jesus. And in that, there is freedom. And one of the things that I consistently hear as you read the news, as you talk articles, you see all the different stuff going on, one of the common things against the Christian faith is what? You know what it is? That it is a restrictive faith. That it doesn't allow you to do this. You know, you've, maybe if you've grown up around church and you couldn't dance, right? You couldn't have that margarita that you enjoy now. Think about all the different things that there were restrictive things that were put on. And so people, all they see about God is that God is this God of checklists and the things you can and cannot do. And the gospel is this. In Jesus, through him, even today when you pull back the bow and arrow and you shoot your best effort, in your own strength and your own power, it's going to fall short. But the beauty of the gospel is, is that Jesus has corrected your aim and given you the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit, you can hit perfection. Not in your own power, in your own strength, in your own wisdom, but by his and his alone. So that the arrow of your life is corrected by the work of Jesus. And so for us as followers of Jesus, there's going to be moments where you have doubts. That's okay. We don't have all the answers. There's going to be great questions whenever we get to heaven of like, what about this? What about, what about the dinosaurs? I don't know. Who knows? Not really important. What is important is who is Jesus? And what has he offered me through the cross? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he's done. Father, the good news is so simple that it trips us up. 
that we think at times that there's got to be more. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. Father, I pray that we would just find freedom in you. Father, that we would lean in to you. And Father, that as a community that we would find people that will love us and tell us the love, tell us the truth and love and snatch us from jumping over the sides whenever something else looks more appealing in that moment than you. And Father, for us to just be a community that stands for the truth, for Jesus in the midst of a culture that's seeking everything and anything, and then we know, we understand, we've experienced that the only thing, the only person that satisfies is the person of Jesus. And we lean in to him. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Cross Point Community Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this message was encouraging to you as you follow Jesus. For more about Cross Point Community Church, you can find us online at crosspointchurchtx.org. Have a great week.